From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Katrina Balf. She plays Claire Frazier in the Stars drama series Outlander. In our conversation, Katrina talks to me about the dramatic finale of season five. Without reading scripts, you always have this worry about, well, okay, but how are you going to do it? And I also really wanted to protect Claire in the fact that, yes, why do we need to see another rape? But also, if you're going to do it, then we can't just gloss over it. Katrina also opens up about the moment her character Claire saves Jamie's life. And Outlander fans, you know the scene I'm talking about. So, here we go. It's 1945. Hitler is defeated. America is looking to outsmart a new enemy, the Soviet Union. To advance in rocketry, aviation, and chemical weapons, America recruits scientists and engineers who fueled the war machine of another nation, Nazi Germany. Operation Paperclip brought the Third Reich's most ingenious and often villainous men to the United States. The War Department thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will pick them up and use them against us. His file said he was 100% Nazi, a dangerous type. Somehow, the file was changed and he came in. I'm Michael Ian Black. Join me and historian Monique Laney on this series, Paperclip, funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Time Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series, Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Katrina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to chat to you. What part of your house have you sort of discovered has become your favorite room in this time? Um, Well, we have sort of like an open plan kitchen living room thing. And I'm spending most of my time here. My couch and I have become very well acquainted it's where I do most of my reading, my eating, my watching TV. I'm, I'm glad I invested wisely in a very comfortable one. <laughs> so tell me how you've been spending your days. I mean, I've seen that baking is happening, running is happening, sketching is happening. Like, how have you been getting through this time? I mean, it's been up and down. I had that, I had a good charity challenge that I was doing because so many charities in the UK have been experiencing this kind of downgrade in funds. We, we did a whole charity day. And so, yeah, I, I had a great week leading up to that where I was really, really busy. I was, I was, I haven't sketched in years and stupidly I gave myself this task of, uh, drawing over 20 of the cast members or the characters in the show. And that was, uh, yeah, that was a full-time job for quite a few days. And uh, the results were not, um, didn't really show, I would say, all the hard work that went into it. But it was it was really fun. And that was really nice just to do something very creative and, and fun in that way. But yeah, bit of exercise. Um, but yeah, lots of eating. And you have to cook it to eat it. So that's been... That's been mainly it. It's just, it's not very exciting over here. Wait, which cast member did you find the the hardest to draw? Well, I think the most pressure was obviously Jamie because I knew everyone would be like, what's Jamie like? And you have to see Jamie. I I figured out that all Highlanders, uh, when I draw them, sort of look the same. 
Um, <laughs> Rupert sort of turned out a little bit like sad Brad Pitt, which actually Grant was quite happy about. <laughs> but the women are really hard. And there's so many of the women, like Lotta was really difficult because she's so finely featured. She's like, you know, this Dutch beauty and you, you, you know, it should be done in oils like a Vermeer or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work out very well. And Lauren sort of looked like a Gerber baby in a bonnet. So, <laughs> so I, I apologize to all of them. Well, and I see you've been watching normal people. What are your thoughts so far? See, I, I'm a lover. I gotta say, I'm a lover. And it's also, I, I, I've heard some people sort of make, complaints about it's not like a typical teenage thing but I think it's very typical for Ireland you know I think it is it has such a specific tone to it that just brought me straight back to secondary school like our high school and it's you know even just those kind of relationships at the school and who was cool and who was not and the kind of difference between people who have money or who are a little bit outside of the kind of core group of people, I thought it was so true. And and yeah, I've, and I've watched the entire series and I'm devastated because I've no more of it to watch. I was going to say, what other shows have you sort of caught up on or discovered in this time? Um, I've been watching 000, but I can only really do one of those a night because it's really heavy. And then usually the antidote, uh, at least the last week or so, has been Dave, which okay. has been... Quite funny. I just, you know, you need to sort of have a, something that's a little bit heavier and dark, and then you need something really silly and fun. I had totally missed Westworld, so we've been catching up on that. Um, there's so much. I don't know. It's just, it's too much, too much TV. When we talked to Jamie, um, Jamie, <laughs> when we talked with Sam, he was telling us how he's watching 90 Day Fiance, and I was curious if he had persuaded you to start watching that no I I like I I have a propensity for some trash tv but I I try and I try and have a boundary (laughs) I think that's below my boundary um (laughs) I although you know I'm not one to judge I do watch uh some of the housewives so you know I can't really uh you know, say anything, but no, I have not. I have not gotten into 90 Day Fiance. Were you a big TV watcher growing up? Like what were the shows or characters you loved? Well, for years, we actually didn't have TV, which I blame for when there is a TV on, I can just get sucked in. But yeah, when I, when I was about five, I think my little brother and I were fighting. He wanted to play and I was watching TV. So he unplugged the TV and walked with the plug in his hand. So the TV came out down and smashed. And my dad was like, that's it. No more TV. And we didn't have it for about five, six years. So that was my Victorian childhood. <laughs> but, but also growing up in Ireland, we would get a lot of reruns of shows, American shows, but like 15 years later or, you know, 10 years later. So the shows I really remember, like I was obsessed with MASH. I loved that show. I loved Cagney and Lacey, <laughs> but it was a great show. I'm trying to think what else. The A-Team featured heavily at one point, you know, those, but they were all like, and Cheers. So yeah, those, those are my shows. Cagney and Lacey is so good. I know. I, th- I feel like it's a show I need to go back and revisit. 
How do you think Claire would be spending her time if she was living through this moment? Like, would she be on the front lines treating the patients? Would she be trying to help, you know, come up with a vaccine? Would she be at home with her grandkids if she has more grandchildren? Um, Would she be home? Like, talk to me about what you think she'd be doing. Well, I think Claire is sort of perfectly prepared for this kind of thing. I mean, Claire would, would be the one character that I think would do really well. I think she would be working on the front lines. I think she would be sort of all hands on deck trying to help and barking orders at people to make PPE for everyone and, um, you know, scolding people for not washing their hands enough or not listening to uh, the advice. Yeah, I, I think her skill set would come in really well during this time. She's someone we need. You and Sam became producers on the series in the fifth season. So what what was the learning process like and how would you say it, it has sort of enhanced your view as an actor? I think this year, especially the first half of the season, was basically just sitting and listening. You know, we we didn't really get the title until all stories were broken and um, most scripts were more or less laid out. Obviously, they weren't finished being written. So we didn't have much input at sort of the early stories stages. But, you know, I think we had a lot more influence sort of on set and how things were going. And, you know, our writer's room is in California and we usually just have one writer producer on set um, whenever we're shooting. And there was a lot of new writers this season. So people who were coming to the show, maybe not as much knowledge as they had. And even like some of our, our line producer had changed hands this year. So there was a lot of new faces around. And I think, you know, where we were able to really sort of bring a positive influence was in keeping that through line or trying to keep the, the through line of, of what the sort of essence of the story is. And, and it's been really interesting. I mean, just sitting in in production meetings and learning what every single department brings to the table and why do certain decisions are made. It's really fascinating. And as an actor, you know, I think sometimes you envision a scene in a certain way and you la- you arrive on set and when things are different, you're sort of like, well, why is this the, the way it is? <laughs> you know, and then you realize that there is 15 to 20 reasons why financially or logistically that these things aren't possible. And I, and I think it's actually really beneficial as an actor to have a broader view of what's going on in the show. And, you know, I think it is definitely a thing with productions where they don't feel like the actors need to know <laughs> anything. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like show up, say your lines and, you know, do what you're told. But I actually think that most actors would actually benefit more from knowing more about what goes into the production. You know, I love it. And I definitely don't want it just to be a vanity title. You know, I want to be as proactive and as invested as I'm let. You know, I I think it's just, it's fascinating, you know, especially when you've been on a show for five years and you're sort of playing the same character you want to keep learning new things and you want to keep growing as a person and professionally. So in that way, it's been really good. Well, I want to talk about season five. How did you find playing Claire at this sort of more mature stage in her life? Like to have her daughter around, her son-in-law, her grandchild. And what what did you find uh, exciting about this moment? 
Yeah, I mean, it's very different, you know, in many ways, it's much more of an ensemble now. You know, the first couple of seasons, the show was told pretty much exclusively through Claire's eyes. And now it, we've opened up that world. And I think, you know, there's a lot of benefits to storytelling in that way. You can veer off into many different little mini worlds and everything. And it enriches uh, the show, I think. But to play a character who's sort of more settled and later in life, you know, there's such pluses and there's some minuses <laughs> that come along with that because in many ways, you know, you feel so protective over these characters and, and it's so nice to see her be so fulfilled. You know, she has her family, her love, and she also is getting to really invest time in this kind of professional side of herself and fulfill the passion within her. And that's really great as an actor to be able to play all of that. But then the minus of that is it comes at, you know, with with a slight lack of complications and drama. So, <laughs> you know, when your character is really struggling with things, that's when you get to, you know, really sink your teeth into the meat of it. Um, so it's 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 been interesting. And it's definitely interesting, I think, for the writers to find that kind of the conflict and, and where the inner workings of Claire's life, what, you know, how we mine that for great drama. Well, as you mentioned, she's sort of devoting her time to her role as a surgeon and as a healer in the community. How important was that for you to show her passion for her work and finding ways to sort of utilize her knowledge? Yeah, well, I think it was really important. You know, I think one of the storylines this season that Claire decides to try and cultivate penicillin you know, it wasn't just about the fact that she's trying to make this medicine. It was so much more about trying to be the sort of master of her own destiny and, and protecting this family and, and this community that have built up around her. And definitely, you know, that storyline went through some different rewrites. And, and you know, I, I definitely at one point, I think they were almost giving the discovery to Marcelie. And I was like, you cannot do that to me. Um, you can't do that to Claire. You know, this is something she's worked so hard on. You can't just give it away. So I think it's really important. I think it's it's good to see, you know, the idea of being fulfilled is a multifaceted thing. And it's also it changes and you go through different phases in your life. And, and I think, you know, last season they were setting up this home. They were, they were finding their feet and she didn't really have time to invest in that side of herself. But this season with being settled, I think it was really important that we get to see her sort of create the life that she would really love to have for herself. How did you feel about the maggots as scene partners? I was fine with the maggots, except for the fact that they stank. <laughs> we have a, we have an animal wrangler, um, Dave, who works on the show. And I think he gets given these kind of crazy, you know, orders every so often, you know, find us rats, find us maggots, and who knows where they come from. But these particular maggots came from rotting flesh, uh, a carcass of some animal. And uh, he brought them onto the set and I sort of <laughs> sent him off to wash them because they just stank of rotting meat, which was really gross. And when you're going to spend, you know, an hour or two playing with them, 
it's not the nicest smell to have around you. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know, like things like that. As long as it's not cockroaches, I'm fine. If that was a, if that was a bucket of cockroaches, you would not have seen me with a camera or like looking at them so closely. I would be screaming like a, like a little child somewhere in a corner. <laughs> It's 1945. Hitler is defeated. America is looking to outsmart a new enemy, the Soviet Union. To advance in rocketry, aviation, and chemical weapons, America recruits scientists and engineers who fueled the war machine of another nation, Nazi Germany. Operation Paperclip brought the Third Reich's most ingenious and often villainous men to the United States. The War Department thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will pick them up and use them against us. His file said he was 100% Nazi, a dangerous type. Somehow, the file was changed and he came in. I'm Michael Ian Black. Join me and historian Monique Laney on this series, Paperclip, funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Time Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series, Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I also need to ask you about a scene from the snake episode. And I think you know which one I'm talking about. Fans were very impressed by Claire's ability to resuscitate Jamie through an unconventional medical method. <laughs> what did you think about, like, this narrative choice? Like, what did you think when you read that scene? I mean, I had read it in the book. Mm-hmm. So I knew it was coming at some point. But there are certain things you can read in a book and then you have to put them into practice and it doesn't always translate. You know, I think Sam and I really, we, we sort of went over that and we, I think in, in many ways as well, the writers were like, okay, you two figure out what you want to do with this scene because everyone was a little bit like, we have to do it because it's one of the fans favorite sort of scenes, but figure out what kind of way you guys are comfortable with it. You know, there is no real, <laughs> you know, motioning. <laughs> I think that was, a, they sort of alluded to that more in the camera than than actually happened. But what we really wanted to do, and I think, you know, Sam and I wanted to find a really intimate and really grounded way of trying to portray this scene and, you know, it took me back to the scene with Master Raymond in L'Hôpital des Anges when Claire was dying. And there is something about Claire. You know, she does have some kind of spidey senses. We've seen it before where she's able to read whether it's a skull or something. She knows what's happened to it. She does have this sort of otherworldly senses about her. And so we sort of kept going back to this idea that you know, the first thing when you're born that's important is that skin to skin touch. And 
we were, you know, for Claire, she has to believe. I mean, I don't think as an audience, anyone really felt that Jamie was going to die. But for Claire, she had to believe that he was dying. And so we had to make it very, very real for the characters who were in that scene. And so for me, I think she, you know, as much as she is his lover and his wife, you, when you're in a couple like that, you sort of become all aspects for each other. And I wanted it to be almost this mothering that if she believed he was actually going to be like he was going to die in that moment, that she was going to cradle him and hold him and hold that space for him as he passed, because that's what she believes in that moment. Um, so that's what the whole skin to skin was. <laughs> um, and, and it's that thing of just, I think she wanted to imprint upon herself the memory of his body and the memory of him and, and to just, you know, it's, it's almost like wrapping her body around him to, to protect him and, and, and hold him. Yeah. So we, and, and to be honest, you know, I think we found a really loving, sensitive way of doing a scene that, you know, when you first read it, you're like, what? <laughs> Diana Gavaldon, what were you on? <laughs> so, Claire went through a really harrowing experience in the finale. She's kidnapped and brutally raped by a gang of men. And the writers decided to use disassociation to tell her story. So she goes in and out of a, a dreamlike sequence during the attacks. And you've read the book, so I'm sure you knew this was coming. What was your approach to getting into the psychology behind that scene? Yeah, well, we... Very early on, um, Max came to us and, and said that they were going to pull this particular storyline from book six into season five. And he talked a little about this idea that he had about not wanting to show the rape or not wanting to be kind of gratuitous about it and that he would that he had this idea to sort of show this disassociative state that she would go somewhere else in her mind when it was happening. And I thought that that was, first of all, a really interesting way of doing it. Um, but without reading scripts, you always have this worry about, well, okay, but how are you going to do it? And I also really wanted to sort of protect Claire in the fact that, yes, why do we need to see another rape? But also, if you're going to do it, then we can't just gloss over it and that somehow Claire doesn't get affected because one of the things that I love about Claire is that everyone talks about what a strong character she is, but there's a danger in that then people sort of make that character Teflon and that, you know, somehow, oh, that could happen to her, but it wouldn't really stick and it wouldn't really affect her. And I, and I thought it was really important to show that no matter how strong you are, no matter who you are, that if you go through something like this, it's, First of all, you you don't know how your body is going to react. You don't know how you're going to be able to process it. And nobody comes out of anything like this unscathed. And so I did a lot of reading about women who unfortunately had gone through um, situations like this and about sort of disassociation and about that idea that sometimes also, you know, once you've gone through so many different um stages of fight or flight because Claire is in this ordeal for such a long time that when the actual fact was happening that she 
that her body and her, she just shut down. And so she goes somewhere else to protect herself. And then, and that's the one thing that where we went over successive scripts because I didn't want it to be that she goes into this other place and that we sort of get lost in this sixties um, vignette and we forget that actually the reason that we're there is because something really horrific is happening at the same time. And so we, we sort of worked really hard about trying to sort of have these little bleed-ins of, you know, she's trying to construct this safe place for herself, but, you know, it's, it's not a perfect, you know, she can't quite block everything out and that you get, you tend to get these, um, moments where, where the sort of horror of what's happening bleeds in again and again. And, you know, we also changed what happens in the book. You know, I think book readers will see what they think, but, um, you know, the, the post ordeal and the post rape is very differently handled in the book. And for me personally, when, again, it's that thing, if you can read something and you can sort of patch over the time constraints, or you can patch over sort of certain ideas, but it was, it was very, um, clear to me from the get-go that we couldn't film certain things that were in the book. You know, I think in the book, Jamie and Claire have this very intense sexual moment and it just felt that that was wrong, um, you know, just even physically for Claire, but also, you know, when you are doing one-hour episodes to have something like that come off the back of something where you see Claire go through this terrible ordeal, it just didn't feel appropriate. So I think we we sort of tried to find another way of doing it. So you have this sort of shot where Jamie's just holding her and they're both naked. And I think that that sort of shows you that no matter what happened, it hasn't completely destroyed their intimacy. And Claire is not, at least at this moment, that's you know, it's, it's baby steps and she will take need time and she will need time to heal and, and come out of this. But that there is strength in the fact that, um, you know, Jamie is there for her and he's able to understand and, and hold that space for her. Well, like you said, I mean, you're working with an hour and obviously the finale has limited time to really examine Claire's trauma after the rape. We get a sense of it, though, obviously. Do you think we're going to be seeing more of what she's grappling with in season six? I mean, it's definitely my intention. Um, I think, you know, it's something we've spoken to the writers about. I don't think that you can wrap things up like that with a pretty little bow. Um, it's something that will change her completely. I don't, I don't think any person who has gone through sort of trauma like that is ever completely whole again. You know, I think it definitely costs you um, something huge. And we've seen that with other characters in our show. And I, you know, I think we will definitely see that going forward in, in season six with Claire. Well, I don't think it's a secret that the show has a passionate fan base. Um, how have you learned to navigate the intensity, like both the good and the bad of that passionate fan base? I mean, it's been wild. You know, I think it's so rare that this happens, you know, I, there's so few shows that sort of cross into that, whatever that space where you have this sort of huge fandom that is as passionate as ours is. And it's, it's 
you know, I think you always have to remember that this is a very privileged position we're in. Um, and it's a real privilege to be part of a fandom like this. And, you know, there's so often, I'm just blown away by the generosity and, and the, just the, the community. And, and there's, and I think especially now, you know, you, you're so aware now that community, even virtual communities are so important. And, and, and it's so lovely to see the connection that so many people have. You know, there's people who have gotten married because of the show. There's people who are in relationships because they met at conventions or they met at this. And that's just amazing, you know, and, and, you know, we'll get letters from people about how much the show or these characters have meant to them. And, and it's really touching and heartwarming. And then there's a very small, it's a very small percentage of people who just seem to love to hate shit, you know, and they just want to make people's lives misery and be heard. And, you know, I try to have compassion for those people because it's obviously coming from a place of pain. You know, that's, that's how I have to think about it. I can deal with it when it starts to have people sort of say really mean things about my husband or stuff like that, which I see. And sometimes people feel the need to tag me in this stuff. And I'm like, why do I need to? I don't need to read this. Um, but then you get defensive and you sort of want to protect the people in your life. But, you know, as I always sort of say, the good far outweighs the bad. And I, you know, it's most of it's online and there's a really, really easy way of dealing with that. Just don't read it. Don't go online. <laughs> Take a break yeah. from all of it for a little while. And I, I tend to do that. You know, I think sometimes it, it can, I, I understand, you know, we have to go online and stuff like that for work and there's certain things you have to do, but it's also okay to take a holiday from it and really just close the door on it and live your life. Well, what can you tell us about season six? I know the writers are hard at work on it, but as a producer, like, do you have any intel you can share about where things are headed? I mean, I don't know what, what I'll, what I'm allowed to say or not. Um, obviously we're, we're following, um, book six, um, you know, I, I feel like it's going to be a really great season. I really liked reading this book. I think it's an easier book to adapt than five was. Um, yeah, I don't really know what I can tell you. <laughs> Are you nervous about going back? Like, have you thought about what being back on set looks like after this? Uh, it's, it's really hard to say. Obviously, Film sets are a very crowded, busy place. Um, you have people coming in and out all the time. You know, I don't know. I think there are a lot of conversations happening um, about what the future is going to look like for filming. The crew can all wear masks and, and things like that. But I don't know as actors what's going to happen. Is everybody except for who's on camera going to be in PPE and then they whip it all off and it's your turn? You know, are we going to have panes of glass between us during intimate scenes? I don't know. (laughs) The future could look very, very different, Yvonne. I think if anyone can make a sex scene look sensual six feet apart, it's Outlander. (laughs) Before we wrap up, it's time for the final segment in our show in which we ask you a question from our previous guests 
Pamela Adlon, the creator, writer, director, and star of Better Things on FX. Is she thinking about how she is going to keep going in the future as an actor and more? And I would encourage her to not just be myopic and think about things in bigger ways and branch out and find her happiness and um, passion in more than one place. I mean, that's less of a question, more of just advice. Um, Am I thinking about the future as an actor and beyond? Yes. Um, You know, I I, I like to think that I'm quite a forward-looking person. And I think in this industry, you constantly want to be challenged by new experiences and um, evolve. And and I think, you know, that's not only in playing very different characters to what I'm playing right now, but doing other things like producing or directing. And, you know, who doesn't want to be Betty White and still be in demand in their 90s? So, yeah. I, I like it. Well, Katrina, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Yvonne. Really lovely chatting with you. That's it for the 10th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to actor Tom Pelfrey. Ozark is just the dream job across every possible dimension. I mean, the entire crew is happy to be there. Everybody's friendly to each other. The atmosphere on set is so efficient and so happy and calm. All of the actors treated me like I'd been there from the beginning. I never felt like I was a guest in someone else's house. I felt like I lived there. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.